Well, welcome to this um, event, um, which will be concerned with lessons from the past, how to learn or not learn from history. Um, so I think when historians are asked to um, comment on whether whether people should learn from the past or how they should learn from the past, they often find themselves confronted with um, something that biologists, for example, are very familiar with. They study complex problems, but then all that the media want to know is um, how it can offer dating advice or something. So I think for historians, there's a similar issue. They're often pressed to give very narrow um, kinds of um, advice to kind of presentist needs. Um, and uh, today's panel, I hope, will explore some of the complexities and um, uh, the very method, in a sense, of how to go about uh, learning from the past by looking not only at the past itself, as it were, but also at the way um, historians in the past have themselves learned from previous um, experiences in, in drawing conclusions and, um, and, well, and making inferences um, from, from these experiences. Um, I, without further ado, I want to introduce you to our panel. Um, uh, they will speak um, each for about 10 minutes, and then um, I will follow some, um, with some remarks at the end, and hopefully we'll have a discussion um, as well. Um, so uh, first to speak will be Professor David Stevenson, who is um, a professor of international history in this department um, and um, has worked um, on uh, international relations in Europe during the 19th and 20th centuries, but uh, particularly um, uh, significant are his publications on the history of the First World War. Um, I should mention, among many, um, his basically classic work now, 1914 to 1918, The History of the First World War, which has been translated in a number of languages and is a standard uh, textbook in, in, in many courses on the subject. Um, and uh, while well, I will omit some, many of the other works um, that, that he has published, but um, I would also like to mention that Professor Stevenson is a member of the advisory board for the Imperial War Museum's First World War exhibition. Um, and, um, and, and of course has commented um, on um, a number of matters uh, regarding the centenary and implications of the centenary um, today. So um, he will be speaking about the First World War as really one of the events um, that um, emerged as a first in a century of disasters. Um, and he will also speak about the implications of um, the First World War as an event which started shortly after the emergence of history as a scientific field of exploration. Um, so this will kind of have this two levels, you know, introduce us to the two levels or two aspects of our, of our problem um, in a sense. So the political aspect of learning from the past and also the aspect of the disciplinary uh, history um, of it. Um, our second speaker is Professor Anita Prashmovska, um, who is um, also a professor in international history here. Her main uh, fields of research lie in uh, the history um, of contemporary uh, Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, um, in the longer periods ranging from um, the uh, early period of uh, the Civil War and, and communism to um, the Cold War history. At the moment, uh, she is actually working on Poland's role in the Angolan Civil War. Um, but previously, she has published uh, also on the history of the Civil War in Poland with Macmillan, a uh, biography of uh, Vladislav Gomulka, um, and a number of um, other works. Um, I also noticed that she has contributed to political, um, critical political commentary to The Guardian and other, uh, other media. Um, she will be speaking about the subject of migration, so uh, starting very much with contemporary issues um, in the coverage of migration uh, matters in current uh, Polish politics, but then reaching back to the centrality of the theme of migration to pol Polish history in the longer period from the 18th century to, uh, to the present. Um, and I'm sure that the subject will resonate with many who are thinking about issues of migration also um, in this country. 
Um, our third speaker is uh, Professor Michael Jones, who is currently the head of de the Department of International History uh, here. Um, in 2008, uh, Professor Jones was appointed um, to become the Cabinet Office Official Historian of the U UK uh, Nuclear Deterrent uh, Program, um, which um, resulted in a two-volume uh, publication by Routledge in 2017. Um, but he also works more broadly on British and American foreign and defense policy um, and uh, has also a, a special interest in um, uh, Southeast Asian um, uh, context um, of, of uh, British foreign policies. Um, I will only mention um, another recent book on Anglo-American relations and the 1954 Indochina crisis, which came out with Bloomsbury in uh, 2019. Um, and um, today, he, though, he will be speaking about um, a more recent uh, uh, crisis, or rather a decade, uh, well, <laughs> close to a decade later, uh, which is the Cuban Missile Crisis, but also he will speak about the way that um, lessons have been drawn from this crisis, uh, some of which may have, have been misplaced, um, and and we'll try to revisit um, the way that this crisis has resonated in, in public um, debates. Um, and finally, uh, last but not least, um, to speak is uh, Professor Michael Cox, um, who is a professor of international relations, but also one of the co-founders of the Center for Cold War Studies here at the LSE, um, and also one of the co-founders of the LSE Ideas Think Tank. Um, he has also advised a range of government bodies and uh, think tanks, such as Chatham House. Um, and I will mention only two books, one which, which um, has gone through three editions, his U.S. foreign policy um, most, more recently with uh, OUP in 2018, um, and also a recent collection of his essays on the post-Cold War world with Rout Routledge in 2019. Um, also perhaps relevant to the subject of this discussion is his work on re-editions <coughs> of critical uh, historical works, particularly E.H. Uh, e. Carr's 20 Years Crisis, the famous book that uh, came out in 1939, um, and then um, uh, John Maynard Keynes' Economic Consequences of the Peace, a critical re-edition of this 1919 uh, classic. He also, though, will speak on a more recent uh, crisis uh, period, which is the end of the Cold War. So this will take us to the current post-Cold War moment. Um, and uh, while well, he will discuss uh, the, the implications or the lessons or not to be learned from um, uh, the minutia, in the sense of the, the end of the Cold War and to what extent it could or should have been anticipated. So without further ado, um, I now hand over to Professor uh, Stevenson, and um, you will hear from me at the very end with some concluding remarks. Right, well, thank you very much for that introduction. Can everybody hear me at the back? Yeah, and can everybody see the slide? Just one slide um, for this presentation to provide you with some mood music. It's a famous shot. This is the East Yorkshires uh, in the Ypres salient on the 20th of October 1917. It's a vivid image and a rather poignant one. And I put it up there partly because the sharpest lessons are taught by the most painful events. And the First World War is about as painful a historical event as you could expect to find. What I want to talk, start with the First World War for a couple of reasons. First of all, as we've just heard from Dina, it's become almost a commonplace now among historians to see the First World War as the beginning of a chain of disasters, a connected sequence of catastrophes running through, really, to the end of the Cold War, if not beyond. There are three major conf confrontations, the First World War, the Second World War, and the Cold War, um, and all of them, in many ways, take their roots back to 1914, and that period, those decades in the middle of the 20th century, provided a plethora of examples for historical analogy and lesson learning that commentators and officials have been drawing on ever since. 
So that's the first thing, the importance of the First World War. And the, the later presentations in many ways fit into this framework that the Poland plays a central part in both the First and Second World Wars and in the Cold War. The Cuban Missile Crisis was perhaps the most dangerous moment of this entire cycle, and we end up with the conclusion of the Cold War and the lessons or none lessons to be drawn from that. The second thing to say about the First World War is that it uh, takes place after the emergence and rise of what would now be called scientific or academic university history as a profession, professional history in the decades of the middle and late 19th century. And in many ways, while the First World War was going on, the generation that took part in it was anxious to create and construct and perpetuate a historical record. It's no accident that it's during this, during this conflict that the first official histories are written of naval and military operations. In the 1920s, um, the foreign offices of Europe produced enormous, published enormous quantities of diplomatic documents <coughs> about why the war had broken out in the first place. And, of course, further documents appeared in the 1920s and 1930s about the peace conference, why the war began, the way in which it was conducted, the way in which it was concluded. All of these things were seen in retrospect as having been mismanaged, gravely mismanaged, and providing warnings and lessons for future generations to ponder. Now, I want to build on that a little bit by talking about how the generation that fought and conducted the First World War tried to apply historical lessons and then I will move on, in a way, to the even more interesting topic of how the generation that fought and uh, conducted the Second World War tried to avoid the mistakes that have been fought, that have been conducted so recently in the First. So if we take, in each case, I'll look at the origins, the course, and the conclusion, but I'll have to be very brief in what I say about each, but just to raise this issue of the lesson learning that took place in the early and middle 20th century before drawing a few bullet points at the end. Now, first of all, if we come back to what happened during the First World War itself, I want to start with the circumstances of its outbreak. And one of the things that's particularly relevant here, and many historians have underlined this um, as influential, is the military advice that went from the professional general staffs to the politicians in 1914 was about the feasibility and importance of striking first and trying to win decisively by offensive operations, even though, as it turned out once the war began, the military technology of the day did not permit that. Now, one of the reasons the explanations for this paradox is that the general staffs of Europe had been trying to learn historically. Michael Howard, who sadly is no longer with us, but died earlier this year, but Michael Howard wrote a very good and important essay about the learning of lessons from the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905, which was studied intensively by the general staffs of Europe, and many of them wrote histories of it. Um, but one of the conclusions was drawn was that the Japanese success in 1904-1905 suggested that offensive operations could still succeed, could still prevail, could still deliver results, even when driven against Russian troops that were ensconced in trenches and with barbed wire and machine guns. Even against those modern defences, the offensive was still a viable method of warfare if you had troops of high training and high morale, as the Japanese were deemed to be. There would be higher casualties, but it wasn't worthless. You would still produce some kind of result. Now, what Michael Howard tried to argue, this is a good example of people learning from the past what they wanted to learn. And, in fact, the <coughs> circumstances that applied in Manchuria in 1905 were no longer applicable in Europe by 1914 to 1915. Let's take a second example, Woodrow Wilson. For the conduct of the war, Woodrow Wilson, when America came in, looked back at the American Civil War, yeah, an example of a total war for 
but pretty much a total war fought recently that didn't have precedence and didn't have much of a resonance for European lesson learning, but was important for Woodrow Wilson, who remembered it, and was, of course, a southerner, remembered Sherman's march to the sea in 1864, the devastation of Georgia that took place. And, but one of the lessons that Woodrow Wilson learned was the importance of trying to introduce conscription quickly, for managing the home front. The second thing was to finance the war as far as possible by taxes rather than by borrowing, And the third thing was that Abraham Lincoln had interfered too much in the conduct of the war by generals such as McClelland in 1862. Woodrow Wilson was not going to repeat that mistake. He was going to give John Pershing a more or less free hand to run the war in Europe. Now, in many ways, these turned out to be quite useful and appropriate lessons. But the third example I'm going to give is much less successful. This is the Paris Peace Conference. The British delegation that went to the Paris Peace Conference took advice from Charles Webster, who later in life was to become the Stevenson Professor of International History at the LSE. But Charles Webster was encouraged to produce a study of the Congress of Vienna, 1814-1815. One of the outstanding uh, conclusions from that is that the Congress of Vienna in 1814-15, the victorious powers first drew up their terms and then brought the French, the defeated French, more or less round the table as an equal partner. And the assumption of the British Foreign Office officials involved at the beginning of 1919 was the same would happen. It didn't. It proved so difficult in 1919 for the victors to reach agreement that when the Germans were brought in, uh, they essentially were brought in to sign on the dotted line on dictated terms rather than to sit around a, a table and negotiate with the victors on a more or less equal footing. So a number of examples there, learning, wishful learning, from, successful learning in some ways, in the case of Woodrow Wilson's case, wishful thinking in 1914, <coughs> lessons of the past disregarded in 1919, Now, I said this becomes still more interesting if we carry the case study forward to 1939 to 1945, the conduct of the Second World War by leaders who, of course, had direct experience of the First World War, which was only taken place and concluded 20 years earlier. Again, I'll take three examples. The first one is Stalin in 1941, in the run-up to the German invasion of the Soviet Union in June of 1941. What Stalin looked back to was Tsar Nicholas II's conduct of the July crisis in 1914, and particularly the order for general mobilization, uh, which took place in Russia on the 31st of July 1914, and was a crucial stage in the escalation of the First World War because it provided a pretext and an opportunity and a cause for Germany also to, general mobil generally mobil to, to, mobilize, to issue general mobilization uh, and to issue an ultimatum. Stalin felt that uh, the war had, become, had been provoked unnecessarily and prematurely He expected there to be a war with Hitler, but he wanted to postpone it at least to 1942, by which time the Soviet Union were better prepared. For this reason, in the run-up to June 41, of course, notoriously, Stalin disregards numerous intelligence warnings and does not place his armed forces on alert. It turns out, of course, that he's learned in many ways the wrong lesson, that the, de the important thing with Hitler was to be ready. There was no... And that Hitler was going to attack, and the chances of... Um, a, a, a non-provocative attitude, a low-key response to that situation on the German side was not going to be effective and was actually going to be damaging. The second example I'll take is Hitler himself. If you read Mein Kampf, much of it is an attempt to exegesis of what had gone wrong in the First World War and to set out the, the guidelines for reenacting the First World War but more successfully. Among the lessons that Hitler learned was the importance of the German home front, of maintaining German working-class living standards, so there wasn't a repeat of the November 1918 revolution. In many ways, he was quite successful in that, though, of course, the cost, 
was borne by the millions of slave laborers who were brought into Nazi Germany during the Second World War. Another lesson that Hitler appeared to learn was that for the, that Imperial Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm, had antagonized too many people at once. <laughs> that he'd, yeah, that he'd, that, and the important thing was to concentrate on one enemy at a time, not to fight a war on two fronts. Hitler ends, of course, by applying this lesson quite successfully in the 30s, but by violating himself that lesson when he invades the Soviet Union quite unnecessarily, really, in June of 1941. So as an example of, if you like, learning a lesson and then not replying the lesson that oneself had learned. The third example I'll give from World War II is unconditional surrender and Franklin Roosevelt, who, of course, was a senior member in the Woodrow Wilson administration in the First World War, drew a number of lessons from that experience, one of them being the importance of bipartisanship and keeping the Republicans on board with the, with the president's foreign policy, um, but learned also the, that Woodrow Wilson, as Roosevelt had thought, had issued a moderate set of peace terms in the shape of the 14 points in January 1918. The Germans had accepted those in the autumn of 1918 and had brought the war in what, to what, in retrospect, seemed a premature conclusion. This is one of the things that leads to the unconditional surrender doctrine which is enunciated by the Allies at the Casablanca Conference in 1943, and which arguably was the correct lesson to learn in relation to Nazi Germany, that you should not leave the scope open for a negotiated solution with Hitler. Much more questionable whether it was also applicable in relation to ending the war with Japan. Now, before I stop, I will mention that this less historical lesson learning process doesn't end with the Second World War. Perhaps one of the most celebrated examples of all, which we'll hear about later on uh, this afternoon, is the Cuban Missile Crisis and President John F. Kennedy's lesson learning during that crisis. The famous example that's always given is his recent reading of Barbara Tuckman's book of the gun, called The Guns of August, about July 1914. The lesson he supposedly learned from that was the importance of placing yourself in the other person's shoes. But, of course, Kennedy learned more than one lesson and applied more than one lesson. If you look at the text of his nationwide television broadcast on the 22nd of October 1962, what he refers to there is not 1914, but to appeasement into Munich. And he actually draws two lessons. One of the reasons why, arguably, his conduct of the crisis is successful is that he applies both lessons learned from 1914, but also lessons learned from the 1930s about the dangers of seeming weak. Now, some bullet points to finish. Number one, it's important to learn about, to think about the dissimilarities as well as the superficial similarities when trying to work from historical analogy. Secondly, one is more likely to do this if one looks at multiple examples. One of the strengths of Kennedy's conduct of the Cuban Missile Crisis, I suggest, is he doesn't just take one historical example. He looks at two, in fact, multi, a number of other analogies. There are several that are floating around in the XCOM debates in October 1962. Thirdly, historical precedent rarely tells you exactly what to do. It doesn't tell you what to do. What it might do is give you an awareness of the pitfalls and the opportunities. They enlarge the scope of your imaginative appreciation in the early stages of a crisis when you're thinking about how to respond if you have time. The final point to make is the role and importance of professional historians. Both in writing about these crises and trying to get the facts right and trying to get the interpretation agreed and also actually in disseminating. Because if we don't do this work, others will. Okay. Historical analogy will continue to be drawn in the press and officials and leaders will draw on what they get from the press. I'm reminded here of Keynes's comment that practical men are nearly always following the dictates of a defunct economist. 
in some ways, too, if one looks at this history of crisis management, the practical men are following the dictates of a defunct historian. Finish with one point, just a vignette, if you like. Another Stevenson professor of international history was Arnold Toynbee. When the war broke out in 1914, he remembered the Greek historian Thucydides, who's always brought out on these occasions, and Thucydides' excitement almost at the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War uh, in the 5th century BC. Um, Toynbee felt a similar excitement when the 1914 war broke out. This was going to be a great event. It was important for historians to live through it. It was almost a privilege to live through it and to comment on it. And he remembered, of course, that famous comment from Thucydides about the Peloponnesian War, that it represented a pattern of events that was likely to reproduce itself in some form or another. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak to you. And um, what I actually want to do today is to speak about lessons that have not been learned. In other words, where history um, had offered certain examples and also had been central. Um, these examples had been central in the way in which then uh, history has been presented. But in fact, those lessons have not been used at all. So what you will see here is a standard vision nowadays at some demonstrations in Poland, which is an anti-immigrant demonstration. Um, it's, uh, the banners are, are, are very explicit. Poland is to be free from Islam. And uh, also the banner above it indicates that those who come to Poland should, be, um, should beware because this is a country that is ruled by the Poles. Um, just on the extreme side there, the letters ONR, Organizacja Narodowa Radikalna, which is a youth fascist organization, undisputably fascist, there's absolutely no doubt about that one. It um, claims dissent from fascist organizations during the 30s, which became notorious for attacking Jews and Jewish shopkeepers and at universities beating up Jewish students. Um, these um, ONR organization is very much supported by the government. It's seen as a reflection of the best quality of Polish youth, and the banners of these organizations have been blessed by Catholic priests who very frequently accompany these organizations as they march out on actions. Okay. Why did I use this other than to remind ourselves how awful we can be to each other? Well, the reason for that one is because this approach, this reaction to the European Union request that Poland should take some number of immigrants, flies in the face of what Poland actually represents in terms of history. We, should, we would normally think that such xenophobia, such ignorance, such aggression would be maybe confined to people who have no familiarity with Islam, have no, uh, never experienced the trauma of migration, exile, and um, the need to flee from your own country. Um, and therefore, the starting point perhaps should be that Poles don't know better, that maybe in Polish history nothing has prepared them, nothing has offered them examples of what it means to be in flight. 
Well, I'll suggest to you that that is not the case. Because Polish history and the way in which teaching history has been taught, as well as Polish literature and Polish curricula at school, in, in schools, are loaded with imagery of exile. And this is one of the typical examples. We've got all the symbols. Um, the Polish-Lithuanian uh, Commonwealth ceased to exist in 1795 when it was partitioned by the three neighboring states, Prussia, Austria, and Russia. Poles um, fought on many occasions up national uprisings in order to get, regain independence. So this, these two uprisings that stand out are, are the uprising of 1830-31 um, and the other one of uprising of 1863. Both had been failures, and of course the Russian Empire managed to um, uh, effectively punish everybody who had participated in these uprisings. So here you've got actually the punitive side. These are the people who are, are led into Siberia and therefore they are crossing the border into Siberia. They know that what lies ahead of them is trauma of not just separation from your own country, but also actually being, uh, you know, uh, uh, the way they were treated during that period. But there is the other side to what happened at the end of this uprising, which is flight. Flight to the west and flight to the south. So to the west, we've got here two uh, images. The, the one there, the French, who um, the, the, the young noblemen, the, the, the people who had participated in the uprising, round about approximately 50,000 men had to leave Poland because otherwise they would have been punished um, by the Tsarist authorities. So they fled, went through Germany and Prussia, Germany, but France was ultimately very friendly as an asylum point. So you can see there is this great meeting of, of you know, the, this, the, the picture is again loaded with that symbolism. The other picture is less well known, it's Portsmouth. So there is a kind Englishman who is welcoming. All that imagery is actually historically correct because in fact any of you who might stray into the key cemeteries in, Britain, in London will see that there were specially designated areas for um, even in the Church of England a consecrated ground for Polish insurgents who had sought asylum in Britain and had been supported in that. So there is this, this, this history of exile and our identity and our literature and paintings are full <coughs> of references to the fact that, you know, as steel is improved in adversity, that the Polish sense of identity had been molded through this constant reference to the trauma of departure and trauma of exile. Exile, which never in Polish literature or in Polish political discourse is presented in, in anything but tragic terms. Economic exile, which is also part of our history, is not much spoken of, but that exile in terms of flight because of the failure to um, gain independence. But I also said that some of those insurgents, in particular in, in 1830s, went south. In other words, they went to the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was, Russians, uh, was Russia's enemy, and therefore um, a number 
a number of Polish noblemen negotiated with the Ottomans for asylum. Mm -hmm. And this uh, asylum was granted. Uh, ignore this picture this minute. This is a contemporary one. I'm still talking about uh, 19th century here. Um, so uh, what happened is that the, the Poles were granted, uh, three villages were created of, of Polish insurgents who fled from Poland in 1830. And in fact, many of them were employed by the Ottomans in the army and, uh, as, as one would say, went native, in other words, converted to Islam and stayed there. But there is a tradition of Polish presence in the Turkish Empire, which goes back. This picture is something else. This is 1942, when during, um, in, in, during September 1939, Germany attacks Poland, the Soviet Union enters also and claims territories to the east. So the, the, the result was that Pol Polish people who were in the territories that the Soviet Union claimed were then removed to the interior of the Soviet Union as a result of negotiations that followed the German attack on the Soviet Union, then Polish troops are formed in the Soviet Union and the Polish civilians came to these camps seeking support from the Polish army that was created then in the Soviet Union. Ultimately, the Soviet uh, authorities did not want the Poles there, but the British were short of troops in the Middle East and approximately 40,000 Poles left the Soviet Union through the port of Krasnovodsk and were moved by ships to the Iranian port of Pahlevi. This is, notice the writing, it is these are children that were removed together with the soldiers um, from the Soviet Union and ended up in Iran. Iran didn't have the right to say anything because Iran was occupied by Britain and the Soviet Union at that time. But I found no negative references to the arrival of these destitute people, in particular because the Iranians were shocked by the, the physical condition. In fact, in, in Tehran to the present day, you have got graves of Poles who have had died there, in particular a cemetery of Polish children, which is respected and is maintained in good order. It is not disrespected and it is not in any way destroyed in spite of the present political situation. So we have here a very strong reference to the existence in contemporary history of a discourse on the flight of Poles and of being granted asylum, being welcomed, being fed, being uh, assisted. What the British authorities did is uh, move the then the women and children from Iran and disperse them through the British uh, uh, Empire. And then at the end of the Second World War, these people were brought to Britain. Which brings me to the final slide, Poles in Great Britain. The Poles in Great Britain, in living memories still for some of the people, um, would have been soldiers, soldiers who were fought, they were evacuated from France, or the ones that came via Iran were then brought into Italy and fought in the uh, Allied entry into Italy. 
these men were brought to Britain and ultimately all dependents that also from that Iranian migration. So approximately half a million Poles arrived in Britain. Britain in 1945 was not an easy place to arrive in because we're talking here about economic circumstances. But in fact, Britain, the British government, the Labour government, but I have no reason to suspect that the Conservatives would have acted any other, created a unique resettlement program, the Polish Resettlement Corps. It was a form of literally conscription. You entered into it, and then you were trained, settled in certain parts of Britain in agreement with trade unions, which were very important, local authority, and employers. The result of that one was that no poll was without employment. They were all inducted into employment and housing. And those children that you saw earlier, many of whom were orphans, were trained, educated, and put into apprenticeships at the expense of the British government. So successful was this resettlement program that, in fact, um, when the Ugandan Asians were forced out of Uganda and as British Commonwealth citizens, they were brought to Britain. It was the example of that resettlement call that was used as a positive government project of resettlement. Let me come back to where I started, which is Poland. What have the Poles learned from the fact that they have themselves experienced the horrors of migration? And the horrors are not just physical, though they are profound. It's not just a fear of political consequences of being sent back to a country from which you flee. But it's also the psychological consequences of being separated from everything you know. Now, what is it that the Poles have learned from it? They have incorporated all these icons, these paintings, these imagery, this debate into Polish history. But when the moment came for the present Polish government to debate the issue of the arrival of migrants who experienced the same trauma as they had done so, their response was, as I showed you in the first slide, to view outsiders in deeply hostile terms. The the, the starting point was if we allow Muslims into Poland, the virtue of Polish women will be in danger. We can argue on that levels here. But in other words, that they are not just criminals, but they are natural rapists. That discourse was not a marginal one. It was central to the debate on allowing people in. For me, it is an example of the selective way in which politicians use history. They very frequently like history. It's persuasive, it's seductive, it's easy to manipulate, but in fact, it is that selectiveness. It's, it's the way in which history then is manipulated, altered, and where reality doesn't fit, it is denied. Thank you. Thank you very much for this um, very passionate presentation on, um, on uh, lessons not learned. Um, and now um, I'm handing over to Professor Matthew Jones, who will speak um, on one specific crisis moment in, uh, in the Cold War, a rather prolonged uh, moment, but anyway, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Thank you, Dina. Thank you, everyone. Um, when we think about the problems of learning from history, an immediate issue arises. 
what are we to take as the historical record from which we are supposed to learn? Put simply, history, our knowledge of the past, does not exist as a body of experience on which we can draw, but only amounts to what historians or contemporary observers write about. As Harold Macmillan told Selwyn Lloyd, his chance of the Exchequer in 1960, quoting Max Beerbohm, history does not repeat itself, it is only historians who repeat one another. <laughs> this is certainly true of the economists and professors. <laughs> Macmillan himself would never stop searching for the past for historical analogies and examples to show that British influence still counted in the post-war world. Most famously in his talk of the British being like the wise and wily Greeks in an American-led Roman Empire or in the comparisons he would make to the age of Queen Anne when evaluating <coughs> the British global position in the 1950s. How can we know which historical accounts on which to base our learning, especially as these interpretations change with new evidence? In his classic work, Lessons of the Past, the Harvard historian, Ernest May, made the point that while policymakers do, of course, look back to history, they tend to do this in an unreflected or simplistic manner. May cautioned that drawing the wrong lessons can be as dangerous as drawing no lessons at all. Moreover, policymakers try to draw immediate lessons from events they have very recently experienced. The Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 provides rich material for anyone looking to explore such issues, and how political leaders who have tried to find its lessons have had mixed experiences. Moreover, new bodies of evidence, including from Soviet sources, underscore how ambiguous are the so-called lessons to be extracted. Early appraisals of the crisis stressed that the toughness and coolness exhibited by President John F. Kennedy, from discovery of the installation of Soviet medium-range and intermediate-range ballistic missiles on Cuba on the 14th of October 1962, to the resolution of the crisis on the 28th of October, which led to their removal, paid handsome dividends. In its immediate aftermath, Kennedy's court historian Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., argued that the president's handling of the crisis showed an almost perfect combination of toughness, nerve, and resolve. It was, quote, so brilliantly controlled, so matchlessly calibrated. <laughs> For Thomas Schelling, who was a, an analyst at the RAND Corporation and applied game theory to conflict analysis, Cuba was, quote, a competition in risk-taking, a di military diplomatic maneuver with or without a military engagement, but with the outcome determined by manipulation of risk rather than by an actual, by an actual contest of force. The measured response of the Kennedy's, Kennedy's actions where initial military advice to conduct an airstrike against the missile sites was rejected in favor of the quarantine or naval blockade was widely taken as a modeling crisis management where a message of resolve was delivered but one which left open the path of de-escalation or alternately a ratchet, ratcheting up of pressure if necessary. This received lesson was later to inform the Johnson administration's policy toward escalation in Vietnam in 1964 and 1965. Here, a gradual series of military pressures was placed on Hanoi in the expectation that increasing the degree of pain felt by North Vietnam would persuade the communist leadership to desist from supporting insurgency in the South, all the while avoiding a major escalation which could trigger Chinese intervention in the war. But the outcome of this attempt to calibrate pressure was simply to lead into a US quagmire, a protracted land war on the Asian mainland. This then can be seen as the misapplication of a lesson learnt. But it can also be seen as a misapplication of the wrong lesson. For a start, though he welcomed the public persona, Kennedy himself was not so sure about the cool crisis management mantle that some of his advisers wanted to hang around the performance of his administration. The lesson he had, he, has drawn, he had drawn from his own reading of history, 
famously in his invocation of Barbara Tuchman's Guns of August, was that unlike in 1914, a statesman had to strive to maintain control of events so that war did not occur despite the wishes of political leaders. However, if the Cuban crisis taught anything, it was that chance and happenstance could sweep all such aspirations for close control aside. This was shown by such incidents as the alarming and unexpected intrusion of a U-2, an American U-2 reconnaissance aircraft over Soviet airspace on the 27th of October, one of the most um, uh, crucial days of the crisis, or the unauthorized use of depth charges by U.S. destroyers against Soviet submarines who were operating near the quarantine line but in international waters. And those same Soviet submarines, we now know, were equipped with nuclear-tipped torpedoes. One submarine commander even ordered one to be fired at a U.S. ship, only to have his order overruled by another officer on board. Moreover, if one looks at the meeting transcripts or listens to the recordings now available of the XCOM, the group of advisers charged by Kennedy with handling the crisis, what one sees or hears are often incoherent discussions, half-considered ideas and rambling digressions, not really the cool, rational determination of options and their consequences. There was, for example, no ready and clear answer to the problem that the quarantine of Cuba would not generate the desired outcome, a removal of the missiles, short of direct military action against the missile sites. Of course, rather than firmness and resolve producing eventual Soviet concessions, it took mutual fear of uncontrollable escalation and the President's private and secret assurance to Khrushchev that U.S. Jupiter missiles in Turkey would be withdrawn as part of a deal, along with a no-invasion pledge to end the, it took those to end the crisis. Communicated to Anatoly Dobrynin, the Soviet ambassador in Washington, by Bobby Kennedy, it was made perfectly clear that the Jupiter aspect of the deal, that the Americans would withdraw their, US, uh, their, their intermediate-range um, uh, ballistic missiles from Turkey, the Jupiter aspects of the deal had to remain private. And indeed, this part of the deal was to remain secret until the late 1980s when it was finally revealed. By wanting to deceive domestic and allied opinion about the true nature of a deal that involves significant concessions to the Soviet position, Kennedy had also deceived the pundits who assumed that toughness reinforced by nuclear superiority had triumphed. In fact, Kennedy was suitably alarmed by the dangers of escalation on Saturday the 27th of October, the most dangerous day of the crisis, that he pushed all out for a settlement on that day, and he had several other ruses up his sleeve if the um, offer to the Brennan had not worked. And what about the role of nuclear weapons? Later claims that U.S. nuclear superiority played a key role in forcing an end to the crisis also look unconvincing with the knowledge we now have. If U.S. nuclear forces were so powerful, why did so many of the American participants enter the final days of the crisis with such a sense of dread, caused by the belief that the Soviets would not back down? Pure nuclear coercion was not what drove U.S. policy. It was more local conventional military superiority in the Caribbean, which allowed a naval blockade to be run, and made an amphibious invasion of Cuba possible, which gave the U.S. the ability to increase the pressure. And it was mutual fear of nuclear catastrophe that drove Kennedy and Khrushchev to a settlement that had its political dangers for both leaders. Kennedy's own readings of the lessons of the crisis might be distilled into two areas. Throughout its course, he was exposed to the belligerence of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, and in particular the U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff, Curtis LeMay. If he had followed the military's advice, there would undoubtedly, undoubtedly have been an airstrike and an invasion of Cuba quite early on. And we now know there were 40,000 Soviet military personnel on the island with tactical nuclear weapons in support. So the consequences of such a reckless course can only be imagined. Always on his guard against war by blunder, 
Kennedy was insistent that tight civilian control be maintained over the military, particularly when it came to decisions over nuclear use during the tense days of the crisis. Afterwards, he was to tell Ben Bradley of the Washington Post, the first advice I'm going to give my successor is to watch the generals and to avoid feeling that just because they're military men, their opinions on military matters were worth a damn. <laughs> the second point extracted by Kennedy was that the risks of nuclear confrontation have simply become too great to be entertained by any rational political leader. And 1963 was to see tentative but genuine steps being taken to bring about a thaw in US-Soviet relations. This incipient detente was marked by the hotline agreement, allowing Washington and Moscow to improve the speed and clarity of their communications, and the partial test ban treaty, banning the atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons. And it was an effort that continued under Kennedy's successor, Lyndon Johnson. For Kennedy, as he said of US-Soviet relations in his famous commencement address at American University in June 1963, which he devoted to the subject of peace, quote, should war break out, no matter how, our two countries would become the primary targets. It is ironic but no accurate fact that the two strongest powers are the two in the most danger of devastation. All we have built, all we have worked for, would be destroyed in the first 24 hours. We are both caught up in a dangerous and vicious cycle in which suspicion on one side breeds suspicion on the other, and new weapons beget counterweapons. In short, both the United States and its allies, and the Soviet Union and its allies, have a genuinely deep interest in a just and genuine peace and in halting the arms race. Finally, we must not forget the lessons drawn by other, pow by other powers in the international system from the crisis. The Soviet Union never deployed its ballistic missiles or nuclear weapons overseas again, perhaps because of the belligerence of Castro's reactions when told of the deal that would lead to a resolution of the crisis. Castro actually wanted the Soviet missiles to be um, used if Cuba had been invaded. But the crisis nevertheless left its imprint on Soviet nuclear policy. The most famous comment from one Soviet diplomat to an American counterpart was, you will never be allowed to do that, that to us again. There is good evidence that the Soviet Union engaged in a large-scale build-up of heavy land-based intercontinental ballistic missiles from 1963 onwards as a result of the crisis in order to achieve a level of at least nuclear parity with the United States. And arguably, the military expansion in turn helped to distort the development of the Soviet economy in the 1960s, which then helped pave the way for the stagnation and disillusionment with the Soviet system in the 1970s. And so perhaps in this way, the crisis planted the seeds of the Soviet Union's own eventual demise. To conclude, any notion that the Cuban crisis can teach lessons in crisis management needs to be carefully qualified. As McGeorge Bundy, Kennedy's national security advisor, saw it, the simple and abiding lesson of the experience was not to allow such crises to occur again. And this was really more a function of the state of health and nature of the overall US-Soviet relationship than from any specific technique that could be deployed. Both the United States and Soviet Union, Kennedy concluded in June 1963, should try to avoid, quote, those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or nuclear war. To ignore this lesson, he said, quote, will be evidence only of a bankruptcy of our policy or of a collective death wish for the world. Thank you very much. And now we are remaining um, in the Cold War period, but hopefully rushing to the end of it, <laughs> um, or the unanticipated end, um, with right. Professor Michael Cox. Hi there. Thank you very much. And um, terrific papers. I, I'm going to start with a little bit of autobiography, or, or should I say confession. Uh, in March of 1989, uh, I attended a rather nice seminar in Paris 
where I gave a paper. And I've still got a copy of that paper. Um, I, maybe it should have burnt it, I don't know. Uh, but in that particular paper, which I think represented not only what I was thinking at the time, but I think most other people were thinking at the time, I made a very strong argument. The Cold War would not come to an end. Why? Well, nobody wanted German unification. That's the British position. Uh, France was not pressing for the overcoming of the division of Europe, except rhetorically. Uh, we needed to keep Gorbachev in the game, therefore upsetting him was not the priority of Western policy. And anyway, it had lasted for 40 years and it produced what John Gaddis called the long peace. For many, many reasons, therefore, the consensus, which I shared uh, in March 1989, was that not that the Cold War was about to come to an end, but that it couldn't come to an end would not come to an end. And actually, I think, in my mind, at least in the minds of many people, maybe I was a bit more ambiguous than others, maybe it shouldn't come to an end because I think many people have grown extremely comfortable with the Cold War. Maybe not the Poles or the Czechs or the Hungarians, but the great powers had become, I think, used to the Cold War, the system of blocks, and then themselves had actually derived certain geopolitical and strategic benefits from it. Now, I start with that observation, not to prove how wrong I was, although I was, um, but also to draw the first lesson, which I think needs to be drawn, is that hardly anybody thought it would happen. And I think that is an important lesson for studying history today. Many of the great events we've seen around us over the last few years and before were not ones that we anticipated. This is why somebody has come up with this rather interesting notion of a black swan event, if you remember. Taleb, when he argued that the big events which come along are the ones which are the least expected, but the ones which actually then have the greatest impact. Think 9-11. Think 2008 crisis. Dare I even say think coronavirus over the last few weeks and months. So I suppose the first lesson to be drawn is that many of the big events, and particularly this one, was not something we anticipated. Therefore, we need a great degree of modesty when we look forward to what might or may not happen in the future. That's my first point. The second thing is that following this, uh, this extraordinary upheaval, which very few people anticipated, and indeed most literature on it pointed in the other direction, not for the end of the Cold War, but for its continuation, and for the continuation of the USSR itself as well. I was a Sovietologist, I can make that confession as well, and I can reassure you that the dominant Western Sovietological truism was the Soviet Union would continue, even if they gave up in Eastern Europe, they would not certainly let the USSR itself disintegrate, which of course it did two years later. After that, of course, being good academics, and we like traveling then without thinking about our global footprint, um, we attended many conferences around the world, talking to people, talking to other academics, even talking to those who were there at disintegration. Wonderful conferences everywhere around the world, talking about why. And here again, there's another lesson to be drawn, I think. I can't tell you how many conferences I went to, how many seminars I went to, talking to participants who were there, Russians and Poles and Western participants in it. But I can tell you one thing, there's absolutely no agreement about why they thought it would end. 
was it about being tough? Was it about negotiations? Was it about economic decline? Was it about, as uh, Matt pointed out, was it about o- overburdened Soviet economy? About, was it about Gorbachev's failed policies? Uh, so I think the second lesson I draw, and again, it's a slightly nihilistic kind of argument I'm making here, how do we know what lessons to draw about a particular historical event when there's no agreement about the causes of the phenomenon in the first place? And it's a more general lesson, I think, about the problems of lessons uh, in particular. I suppose the third lesson I draw, and I'm, I'm kind of deeply ambiguous about this because I'm not a great fan of counterfactual history, I'm a follower of a man called, many of you in this room may know about, Edward Hallett Carr, who wrote one of the greatest short books. Better he wrote short books than long ones sometimes. There's a great book called What is History, which was a series of lectures he did. And in that, of course, he, did, he said many things, usually generally rude things about the establishment. But in essence, what he argued there was uh, don't engage in counterfactual history. D- discuss what happened rather than what did not happen. And I think that's, a, that's still a pretty good thing to direct. But nonetheless, when looking back now at all the work that has been done on the end of the Cold War, thinking about what has been written about it, I think there has been a, a tendency, no more than, but certainly a tendency to say that because it happened and because we can get multiple causes about what happened, it therefore had to happen. And what I want to suggest here, maybe a third lesson, is that historical path, there is not one historical path here. It seemed to me that if you were sitting in early 1989, what path would happen in East Central Europe? What path would happen in East Germany? If you were sitting in 1990, did you know exactly where you thought the USSR may go? Now, after the event, of course, we're all very wise. As we know, we've got 2020 vision after the event. But at the time, I think, again, we've got, to be, we've got to put ourselves in the historical moment and not rationalize or at least reflect after the moment to say that the thing uh, was, was itself inevitable. It seems to me that different paths may have been followed, either through 1989 or even after the end of the Eastern Europe. It could have ended up with a coup d'etat and the restoration of Stalinism. It could have ended up with war. It could have ended up with much greater conflict than we actually, in the end, uh, witnessed or, or experienced. So, again, my lesson, the lesson three is beware inevitability, the notion that what happened, therefore, had to happen, because we then find the causes for it to happen, which, in a sense, is a bit of a critique of the LSE motto, isn't it? Always look for the causes of things. Well, the danger of always looking for the causes of things, you derive from the causes the notion that something had to happen. I think one's got to be aware of that. This is my final point. The general lessons, David made a very good point, I think. If if historians don't engage in serious discussion and analysis of important historical phenomenon, and David talked about the importance of the First World War at the beginning of the 20th century and defining the 20th century, I would maybe make an equally strong argument that what happened between 89 and 1991, in a sense, is the end of something we call the 20th century. A new century or a new era emerges there afterwards. But a lot of non-historians have got in on the act, to put it rather rather bluntly. And I think it's been quite worrying. You can manipulate history to draw the lessons that you want to draw for the foreign policy purposes you want to pursue. Now, On the nice side of this, there is one lesson you could draw from the end of the Cold War, which had been drawn by people who believe in negotiation. 
They say, well, how did we get out of the frozen situation that we had been in for 40 years through negotiation? Ronald Reagan, George George Schultz, uh, Mrs. Thatcher even played a big role in this, François Mitterrand, and of course Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev. Negotiation broke down the ice, melted the ice, gradually created trust, which in turn led to finally the negotiations, which led to a relatively peaceful end to the Cold War in Eastern Europe in 89. That's one set. So therefore, in the future, the best way to get out of a difficult situation is through negotiation. That's a lesson that many have drawn. That's a fair fair point. There is, however, another lesson to be drawn, which was drawn, I think, by the Bush administration uh, after 9-11, which was, in essence, that Ronald Reagan had won the Cold War by being tough. And that if one promoted democracy in any part of the world, as had been promoted in Eastern Europe in 1989, that would solve your problems. And I think there is absolutely an enormous amount of evidence to suggest that the Bush administration, which didn't have too many historians within it, I think, uh, Matt, it may have had one or two, but I, I don't remember them at the time, I think they drew a lesson from how they thought, the lesson they drew about Ronald Reagan and how he had won the Cold War, not through negotiation or discussion or debate, but by being tough and strong and promoting democracy. Now... From this, I don't derive the obvious conclusion that, therefore, the disaster that became Iraq was only because of drawing the the wrong lessons of history, but I do think it made a difference because you can look through what was said at the time. All sorts of lessons were drawn from 89 that democracy would solve all your problems, the clean water of liberty would sweep away terrorism in the Middle East, and by drawing that lesson of being tough while combining toughness with democratic promotion, you would then address the problems facing the Middle East uh, after 9-11. And that, to me, again, strikes me as a very dangerous lesson to have been drawn. So, in some regards, learning lessons is necessary for historians. I wish sometimes politicians would keep out of it, because inevitably, it seems to me, and invariably, they will draw the wrong ones, or at least the ones which are most useful and instrumental for them. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, um, Professor Cox, and thank you to all, um, all our panelists. I'm going to make a very short um, remark at the end and hopefully open up to a discussion because we want to also hear um, from you. So my name is Dina Gusenova. I'm also a historian in the Department of International History. Um, and um, as I was listening to, to my colleagues here, I, I thought that, of course, this was, this was a presentation very much reflecting on the disciplinary concerns in the way of professional historians in dialogue with policymakers or uh, responding to events in society. And um, what I think we would like to hear is to what extent um, these concerns or these expectations tune in with the concerns and expectations about lessons from history um, in, uh, among people of different professions or backgrounds. So putting on our own different hats and your, your hats, if you like. Um, so that's, that's the kind of discussion that uh, we would very much uh, like to have. And I, I just want to open up with three um, uh, short remarks. So one is that I think often when people talk about lessons from the past, what we want to hear is um, 
is an answer to the what question. So what are the lessons from the past we, we should learn? And of course, we've, we've heard about um, uh, lessons about crisis management in different conflicts um, and uh, also the, the idea of um, the, what kinds of emotions are appropriate um, uh, and um, identity, national identities and also what sorts of events should we predict. Um, but I think um, one idea that I took from the uh, speakers today is that perhaps we should think about two other points in thinking about lessons from the past, which is who is it that should draw lessons from the past? And also secondly, when is it that these lessons should be drawn? Um, and I think this is where, um, uh, to me, some of the um, more, more subtle elements of, um, of analysis came in. So in the question of who, I think we've heard... Um, about different um, uh, expectations and perhaps disappointments that professional historians maybe have in observing how lessons from the past are made, not only from their own field, but also from policymakers and also from society at large. So regular people who attend uh, demonstrations, as in um, Anita Prashmovska's presentation, but also policymakers and leaders, whether they are politicians who are kind of uh, carried on in history as likable individuals uh, like uh, Wilson um, in David Stevenson's presentation or who are the villains of history, if you like, like Stalin in his his presentation. Uh, We want to know, um, in a sense, uh, who is it that that made the right or wrong policy um, decisions um, in in a particular um, moment. Um, And um, a further point, uh, the when question, I think, is is important because we also heard that often lessons from history are taken in crisis moments. So whether it's um, the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, as in Matthew Jones's presentation, um, or the, the question of um, uh, the moment at which historians should have predicted the end of something, such as the discussion of the end of the Cold War, uh, should we worry or not about the inability of um, most professionals to predict the end of the Cold War, um, as um, Michael Cox reconstructed. Um, and of course, uh, to some extent, the crisis moment is the moment when people reflect on lessons from history. But um, I suppose professional historians at least have the advantage there that they have often prepared analysis of historical situations in advance of a particular crisis. So maybe that's, the, that's perhaps the only ad, um, advantage that, that we can offer in terms of uh, disciplinary perspectives. Um, apart from that, I suppose we're all on the same page in, um, um, in sort of where to, where to take this from. So um, I would like to now um, hand over to, um, to you and some questions and collect some questions from the public. Uh, we'll probably take two questions at a time. So, Thank you. Hi there, thanks very much for the talk. Um, I wanted to come back to the long piece, which has already been touched Sorry, on. Sorry, can I, I can't hear you. Long piece, did you say so? Yeah, is it working? Um, can the panel comment on the long piece, which Professor Cox already touched on? Has there been a systemic change in um, the major powers system since uh, 1945, or are we um, in the same sort of risk position that we have been in the (coughs) first half of the 20th century? And could we take one more question just uh, from the gentleman there? Just behind you. Yeah. Hi, um, I mean, one of the difficulties of learning lessons from history is that history is so complicated that the lesson is it's a hard answer. Um, it's multi-causal, it's never monocausal. So one of the things that came out of all your talks is that contingency or accident is often a key um, factor in the past. How do we draw lessons from contingency or from accident? <laughs> Maybe we'll start from these two and there are more questions. 
Right. Um, okay, I'll have, I'll have a quick go, just quickly, on the, on the first one. I, I mean, it, this notion of a long piece, of course, coined by and popularised by John Gaddis in the, in the 1980s, by the way, before the end of the Cold War, saying we've lived in a long piece, and it's a good thing, it should remain in being. And John Gaddis, although a very remarkably good historian of the Cold War, at least set the, set the parameters for a debate about why the Cold War wasn't going to come to an end. <laughs> and I think they had, had an enormous influence. And therefore, after the Cold War came to an end, there was a kind of a reaction against what Gaddis had argued and this notion of a long peace. And there's many things which were not peaceful in the Cold War. And it, it, you know, so the notion of a long peace simply ignores the dangers, the deaths, 25 million people, and what Matt was talking about, a, a near devastation of civilization in 1962. I, I, I accept all that. I still, however, kind of buy into it to a degree that the post-war order at least after 45, for a series of reasons which has to do with the structure of the system, has to do with nuclear weapons, which certainly didn't exist in the interwar period, and has to do also with, I think, certain lessons drawn from the interwar period. A repetition of that would be a a complete disaster. So to that regard and to that degree, I kind of still hold on to that notion that great power war would not happen again. Um, for structural reasons as much as lessons learned. And I think that wasn't unimportant. I think even when Matt was talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was at least a sense, I think, Matt, that the past was a very dark and dangerous place and you didn't want to go back to it. So maybe from that point of view, it served a certain, a certain people. On the question of contingency, I don't want, to, don't want to get into the whole question, you know, Cleopatra's nose, everything's accident, all is contingency. I might as well stop working at the LSE because we're supposed to be doing social sciences, aren't we? You know, not everything is a, an accident or a contingent factor. All I'm saying is that social sciences need to take contingency accident and individuals far more seriously than they generally have tended to do. Let me put it rather bluntly. Would we have had the end of the Cold War without Gorbachev? I kind of take the view that we would not have done for all sorts of reasons that would take too long to explain. But that brings us back that if we're social scientists, find study structures, study long-term demographics, study all that. But remember, you know, the accident, the contingency and the role of it and misperception in shaping historical events. Just, just to say, I mean, just echo what uh, Mick has said about the, the so-called long piece. I mean, I find that sort of semi-offensive that term sometimes because yes. when, you, when you consider what was going on under the shadow of this um, the superpower confrontation Absolutely. in many parts of the world, particularly the global, the global south in the 1950s, 60s and 70s and 80s as well mm. and the millions of people that really... I mean, and if you look at perceptions of the Cold War from the global south, in some ways yeah, they, they are the super, many of them superpower proxies which are used you know, to fight the wars which should otherwise be fought by people in the global north. I mean, that's mm. one way of... That's why I've kind of like a, a kind of like more of a grand holistic yeah. way of interpreting the conflict. But then also, as, as Mick says, I mean, the actual the superpower standoff of, of nuclear confrontation, because it was such a total, it was the t- totality of the confrontation. It was two universalizing ideologies, two, mm. two systems that could not, in many respects, tolerate the existence of one another at various mm. times. They felt they couldn't do. And if a war should break out, it would have been a global thermonuclear war, which would have led to the extinguishing of all life on the planet. Now, that's a, you know, which, which the stakes were, could not be higher. Now, perhaps the more, the, the, the kind of like sense more dangerous circumstances in which we find ourselves in now mm. are because the stakes, in the view of some decision makers, are not as high because the, there isn't a totalizing ideology to inform the decision making background of leaders. That war between great powers might be seen as possible, mm. a possible course of action, a possible resort mm. if 
interests, are, you know, key interests are seen as threatened, perhaps, mm, mm. or if people are driven to it mm. by, you know, by, by, by various events. So I think that's the danger that you face mm. now. Would you like to comment? Or would, should we take some more questions? And take some more questions. I think there was one question here, and maybe one more if we have time. One I just wanted to ask what the panel think of the recently developing field of cleodynamics, which looks at history as a giant data set and tries to gain lessons from it using mathematical equations and algorithms rather than just the, the traditional method. Okay. Oh, okay. Sorry, there was one question here. And mathematical equations. Hi. Hi. Uh, am I right in thinking that one of the uh, clear lessons of history that have not been learnt by statesmen and military leaders is the efficacy of aerial bombing. And if that is the case, why is it? Take two more questions right, and yeah, then we will fine. select. Sorry, yeah. fine. Sure. So um, if, if we could have one question from you and one question from the gentleman. Yes. Okay. Um, this is much more current history, doesn't go quite so far back. But we're facing an election in the States in which one party, the party that I'm actively involved in, doesn't seem to be taking any lessons from what happened just a few years ago. Comments? <laughs> Please. Well, thank you for that. That's yeah. very... <laughs> okay. Paul Hudson, um, I've retired from academic life. I'm not a PACA historian, I'm just uh, an interested amateur, I think that's Sorry, could the you way turn to the put it. Sorry, yeah. can you hear me now? Yes. yes. Um, I was particularly interested in Professor Cox's idea that um, perhaps more attention should be paid to the individuals who are involved in negotiations. My impression is that Marxist his, uh, historians put a lot of emphasis on uh, economic forces and tend to uh, downplay psychological or personal forces. Mm. And I'm thinking, um, particularly, for example, just not even on an international scene. When we had coal strikes in Britain, Arthur Scargill <laughs> succeeded somebody who was very moderate. The, his predecessor didn't go round thumping on the table to get Gormley. demands, but he secured the things for the miners in a way that Arthur Scargill's aggression didn't do. <laughs> and on the other hand, uh, when Anthony Eden uh, was foreign secretary, in modern times, he was the most linguistically gifted of our foreign secretaries, not only French and German, which was normal, but, but he also spoke Arabic and Farsi. And so I'm going to have to cut you off just very briefly because he we have completely to misunderstood yeah. or misgaged, in fact, the psychology of the Iranians. I wonder whether that's a, a reasonable hypothesis to put forward. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, these are obviously yeah, large questions. We'll start um, with uh, Anita Brzmowska and David Stevenson, and hopefully... I, will, I was intrigued by the question about aerial bombing, because I was, I'm wondering whether the question is not to, to, to uh, actually a question about the fact that aerial bombing ultimately is indiscriminate in terms of the target and therefore that the morality of, of that should be debated. And uh, sometimes when I'm confronted with students who ask questions which relate to morality, my answer is that really morality is the first thing that goes out of the debate when it comes to pursuit of strategic considerations or political advantages. And in history we can see many examples where in principle 
at the end of a war or at the end of a crisis or in circumstances where the electorate calls for some response, politicians will very often in honesty commit their government or their administration to a particular course of action. But then when confronted with um, the way in which morality ties your hands and restricts your options, it's surprising how they somehow managed to dissemble. And I remember, the, for me, the Falklands War was the first war that I, as an adult, could understand. And I was absolutely fascinated by the way in which, all of a sudden, everything that... The, the, decent law-abiding British public would normally be uh, uh, saying these are the principles. They didn't apply because we were attacking Argentine, Argentinians and it sort of wasn't the same. They were not like us, you know, so the Belgrano ship was heading away, but never mind, you know, bring it down. And then there was the question of um, soldiers that, British soldiers that had been captured and then um, were exchanged prisoners of war and Margaret Thatcher approved that they should go back into the theater of war. She said they were desperate, they wanted to go and the, the agreements are normally that you don't do that. So it's, if we're talking about morality in politics, in strategic pursuit of self-interest, we might hear a lot of open statements, we've learned lessons, we will never do it again, chemical warfare, this warfare, this one, that. Believe me, that, that is not going to remain on the agenda if you feel that your enemy, and in particular because you can just justify it by saying the enemy will do it, so we can just as well do it ourselves. I'm afraid we have time for one more answer only from, from David. I'll, I'll try and keep it brief. I mean, on the cloud dynamics, there's, there was a very good long piece in The Guardian two months ago and I think it, it's important but I think it's unproven and we have to wait a bit longer I think and see, see what, what comes out of it on the personalities um, it does matter it does matter if Donald Trump is in the right might house rather than John F. Kennedy and it's worrying it's also worrying if one takes into account what was said earlier on about the long peace I think Depends how far you push this. Yeah, I'm reminded not just of the long peace hypothesis of John Gaddis, but also the um, Stephen Pinker hypothesis and the better angels of our nature, which argues that other, his, other writers have taken this up as well, the idea that war as a whole is becoming, major war is becoming obsolescent and we're in an era of civil wars rather than interstate wars. Um, I'm not convinced by that. I wish I could be. I think, as um, Matthew was suggesting earlier on, Yes, yes, we've had absence of great power war since 1950, but the and the, you can argue that's partly because of nuclear weapons, but it's also because there are various structural features of the system which John Gaddis talked about, which made a war between the United States and the Soviet Union in some ways unlikely, even if the nuclear weapons had not been there. Since, oh, I suppose, developing over the last decade, we've moved into a much more dangerous and volatile situations, it seems to me. There are similarities if you want to push these um, with the way in which the international situation changed around about 10 years before 1914. We're moving increasingly into a situation, it seems to me, where we might, we might find ourselves walking into a major crisis. It might happen now over Idlib. We might get ourselves into a very dangerous situation where it really does matter if there's someone unstable and a risk-taker in the White House. So I wish I could end on a more optimistic note, but I can't. 
Okay, brief uh, final comment. Well, I, I, yes, quite a lot to deal with there. Um, aerial bombing, briefly. I mean, the great theorists of aerial bombing, of course, was H.G. Wells many, many years ago. Uh, does it work? Yeah, occasionally it does work. I mean, you know, Libya was aerial bombing. The Russians are employing aerial bombing today. I mean, it, it, whatever. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it's still being used, uh, tragically, with disastrous results as... As my colleague pointed out. Uh, but I, I just one, one point, though, because we don't have a lot of time, I know. On the question of the United States and lessons, which was asked by my American friend, colleague, in the front row here, are there any lessons to be drawn as we move towards the November 2020 election? Yeah. I think there's one. Well, I'll take one, okay. Don't ignore the left behinds don't ignore those people who have been marginalised. Don't ignore those people who have lost their jobs. Don't ignore those people whose communities have been transformed by change. You know, I think the big lesson I would draw about either Brexit or, or about what happened in the United States, and I, I don't see this as somebody who support, support Leave or would voted for Mr, Mr Trump, but nonetheless, there, there certain things were articulated by those who wanted to change the status quo because they thought the status quo wasn't working for them. And I think if, you know, academics and experts and people like at the LSE need to draw a lesson, is you've got to listen to those people you don't necessarily agree with. You've got to necessarily listen and draw the lesson that what they're saying and what they're articulating, even if you don't like what they're saying, nonetheless expresses what they're feeling. And I think if we're learning any lesson from the present moment, we're in a situation we're in precisely because we didn't do that. And if we don't do that in the future, we're going to find ourselves in even more graver problems than we are at the moment. Right. I'm afraid we'll have to conclude with these words. And um, we continue another session. Thank you. Thank you.